Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai, and I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite. We're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, the co-host of Biotech 2050 today. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a two-sided tech marketplace where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to accelerate and de-risk the development of new therapeutics. I'm excited to welcome Sachin Chandran, Executive Director and Head of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Catabasis Pharmaceuticals. Thanks for joining us, Sachin. Happy to be here. So as a starting point, we'd love to just have the audience learn a bit more about you and, and your background. Grew up in India. I came here for grad school, started a PhD at Johns Hopkins, and after graduation, I uh, was at Bristol Myers Squibb for a little bit and moved to Vertex. After that, that's when I moved up to Boston. And then I've been at Catabasis Pharmaceuticals for the last five years where I head up the pharmaceutical sciences function. Well, certainly it sounds like you had a, an interesting sort of career trajectory there, you know, at a school. I know from our prior discussion, it sounds like there was some interesting things that came out of your, your graduate school work. You know, maybe it would be great if you could sort of give us a bit of a sense of what your graduate school experience was like, what happened with some of that technology. So maybe to follow up to that afterwards is give us a sense of what it's like to work at some of these companies, both big and experienced, as well as sort of young and emerging too. Right. When I started in graduate school, I was in the Department of Chemical Engineering, but my lab was at the School of Medicine, and my PI was a prostate cancer oncologist. Essentially, the goal it's the standing joke in grad school. You know, everybody wants, starts off by thinking you want to cure cancer. And I remember he joked, he, he joking about it once saying, yeah, you probably have come in thinking you want to cure cancer, right? So anyway, the, bo- the bottom line is the problem statement was we've got this disease and how do we figure out a way to effectively treat it? And towards the end of my graduate life, came up with this new technology based on nanoparticle that was targeted to prostate cancer. And it was actually the founding technology for Bind Therapeutics, actually. So it was licensed to Bind. And it was interesting. I think I remember the idea came to me in the shower. So uh, so it was it was interesting. And it was, I'm ha- I was happy that eventually a lot of the experiments I did in the lab translated on an industry level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very gratifying to see. You know, in that circumstance, there that seems to be one of the dreams, I think, of every PhD student in an engineering discipline. Yeah, is, especially in Boston. Yeah, right? especially in Boston. Absolutely, yeah. right? Uh, especially being able to work, you know, have an idea, be able to realize it, at least in, as a proof of concept in an academic laboratory, and then see it enter into the world, right. right? What was that like, emotionally speaking, right? You know, not only doing the science, which I'm sure was uh, fulfilling, but then sort of seeing real people, you know, leverage real dollars to put in patients and such. It was a bit of a mixed experience in that, on the one hand, coming out of graduate school and I came here on a visa. So this this was essentially a great stepping stone because on my green card application, I think it looked great, right? <laughs> However, I, I think once the technology was... When I moved up to Boston and I, I could, you know, things were moving for Bind, I think it was interesting because... On the one hand, there was there was always that nagging sentiment, like you know, what would life could life have been different, right? So it's it's great that eventually the technology was licensed and it, it moved forward and it, it went where it did. And you know, unfortunately, it failed. But most drugs fail, as mm-hmm. as we know. And I think what I learned from it is that you know, ideas can come from you know any person at any stage in their career. And especially in now that I'm in more of a managerial role, I you know, it's it's important that you 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 give the freedom and the flexibility for idea generation to make sure that you can get good ideas from people. And out of curiosity, when you went from, let's say, grad school to big pharma, 
and then went from big pharma to big biotech, and now you're at a smaller biotech. What has your mindset been going from place to place, and what were you hoping to achieve with each move? Starting off in big pharma at Brisma Squibb, I was in New Jersey. The group was very well established. Yeah. Coming in from graduate school and moving into that role was actually a very uh, it was very different from everything I'd done that far. I remember during the interview, uh, one of the directors asking me what polymorph was, and I actually didn't know uh, because I'd never encountered that term. I think I responded by saying, "Is it like an allotrope or some, <laughs> something like that?" So it started from a point where I didn't really know the specifics about how to do the job. But at the same time, I think what it presented was an incredible learning opportunity where I could step in and, you know, I knew the things that I'd picked up in grad school, but I could essentially add to that pile by going through the paces of sort of pre-formulation and formulation development. BMS, the first five years, a lot of learning. It was almost like getting another degree, if you will. And then moving up to Vertex, uh, actually moved for personal reasons because my wife moved up here for a postdoc. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I made the move to Boston. And at, at Vertex, it was, you know, you got to use some of the things you'd learned. But at the same time, the, the environment was very different. It was very, it was very challenging. It was very driven. And I think I saw a very different side of the business in that, you know, the timelines were much shorter. And it put an enormous amount of responsibility on people and making sure that folks followed through and, you know, you got the results that you wanted. So very results-driven organization, I think. Mm -hmm. And for, let's say, our younger listeners or perhaps some older listeners that have been in big pharma for a while, do you have a perspective on, you know, let's say out of grad school, is it better to go big pharma and then smaller companies or the opposite, start in small biotech, do a bunch of different things and then and then go up to big pharma? I think it really depends on the individual. For me, what really worked well is the fact that I started off at BMS and got to learn a lot of new things. Mm-hmm. Um, grad school is one of those places where you really learn from your failures. You know, you, you go into the lab, you run your experiments. If your experiments fail, you know, that's your cross to bear, right? Mm-hmm. A big pharma company a lot of different programs, things happen and you learn from them. You learn from everything. Mm. And that's, I think, what BMS gave me. A lot of learning, not just from running your own programs, but from hearing about other programs that your peers were involved in. And moving to a smaller company and then now to Catabasis, I think I'm at that position where you can apply a lot of those learnings that you picked up at a prior stage in your career. Having said that, I don't know if that's the right way or the only way. Mm -hmm. I've known a lot of people who've started off in small pharma and who've done exceedingly well. Mm -hmm. I think the growth potential is significantly it's far more exponential, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. in a smaller company. And that brings in a, a new set of challenges. And if you're well equipped to handle them, or if you've got a great mentor or a boss mm-hmm. who's seen enough, mm-hmm. then I think you can be well positioned even in a small company. I do think it really comes down to your microenvironment, your your group, uh, <laughs> the quality of your group, the quality of your boss. They are top notch. And if you know, you're willing to learn from them and imbibe that information, then I think you will be successful. I think it's a, it's a good uh, sort of overall telltale that who you spend time with uh, is a good measure of Absolutely. who you're going to become, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. On the point of, of mentorship, so I know you were involved in some mentorship programs previously. Would love to hear your thoughts on what you think about mentorship in, in biotech generally compared to, let's say, big pharma. And, and to the point of, you know, it, it is very much dependent on the tribe. But are there any things that come to mind that you think we should be doing differently or that you think biotech does particularly well? So in the bigger pharmaceutical companies versus smaller biotechs, I think that sometimes people forget that, especially as you move up the chain, the mentorship is a key part of your role. Mm. I think everybody means well, but the job catches up to you. Mm. And this is a bit of a general statement, but 
typically biopharma, biotech in Boston is a very high stress environment. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of companies are trying to sort of, they're probably, you know, staffed a little bit less than they need to be perhaps. And the timelines are crunched up. So eventually I think it leads to a situation where people are very focused on their own jobs and trying to get, you know, their objectives met. And I think sometimes what gets lost in that a little bit is is the mentorship mm. aspect of the job. In terms of big, bigger companies, I think there is always the possibility. And I, I was lucky in that I did have a great first boss and you know, he was patient when I didn't know things. He, you know, he didn't get upset. He, he mm-hmm. basically sat me down and explained things to me. So I think people in every role can truly have the opportunity to mentor mm-hmm. if they if they choose to. And I think you know, it really comes down to the personality of the people involved and the culture that the organization has sort of established. Well, you know, I think it brings up an interesting topic that as you think about not only mentorship, but also sort of team construction, right, in a company, a lot of its success sort of built on that. When you think about an emerging biotech like Catabasis, a phase three asset and 30 or so employees internally, I'm really curious how you think about that team construction, especially as you've gone from BMS to then Vertex to then Catabasis. What is sort of the key personalities and backgrounds that you think make a company like a Catabasis so potent, Mm -hmm. given that you have a phase three asset, but only 30 employees, an equivalent program at a large pharmaceutical company would have 10 times as, or require 10 times as many people. How does that sort of team construction and behavior work at a small company? I heard this term, term very recently, a force multiplier. Um, I, th- it's, it, it's, I think it's well known in military jargon, but I think small companies need a lot of force multipliers within the organization. People who are A, multifaceted, and B, the energy to go and do a lot of different things. And I think one way Catabasis does that is We have a lot of very enthusiastic, committed, motivated people within the company who are committed, as I mentioned, but also who possess the abilities and skills to go out and do different things. And I think what that does for the company is that it allows the company, it affords the company the option to reduce your overhead, if if you will, right? And I think in general, that as an idea, I think it helps because companies can then be more nimble. So I can give you my own example in that I go out and represent catabases at a lot of patient advocacy events. Mm-hmm. And that is not something that would have happened if I were at a big company, right? I'm in product development and patient advocacy is so far removed that, you know, they're two different silos, if you will, right? So a lot of those silos don't exist. In a smaller place, you communicate openly between these teams. There is a need. You step in to fill that need and you help catabases with the need. Even though we are such a small company, I think we are one of the most well-attended companies in the Duchenne muscular dystrophy space, which mm-hmm. is where our, you know, our drugs in phase three. And that's very gratifying because of all the work that the other employees within the Catabasis team are doing to represent Catabasis at patient advocacy events. And it is important to actually note that we do not have an in-house patient advocacy person. So despite that, our attendance just speaks to the fact that people from different departments are willing to go out on weekends and travel across the country to do that. So, And, and patient advocacy, let's say, at a, at a company your size with the pre-commercial is the viewpoint that you want to educate the community and potentially then impact perhaps clinical trial recruitment, but then also forward-looking from uh, from a commercial lens? So the, the events that I usually attend are by a group called uh, Cure Duchenne, mm-hmm. and their goal is to, as the name says, you know, come up with a cure for the disease. These are mostly informational sessions mm-hmm. they organize uh, for patient families. The, the role for the companies is to essentially come in, present their work, say where they are in the development space, 
and mostly educate the community about what else is likely out there on mm. the horizon mm-hmm. and importantly it's about connecting with the community making sure you hear the stories mm. that you can bring back to catabases one that particularly i think resonated was when i was in salt lake city and a family that actually had to travel from boise all the way to salt lake and it was a 5 hour drive or something i mean it just it makes you realize the work you do is so important mm. and you eventually if your drug works then you want to make sure that you want to get it to everyone who's affected so they can potentially benefit from it so it's it's quite unique for a company your size to have you know patient advocacy program and i think it's really important the companies that end up having you know disproportionate success based on their size oftentimes you know are keeping the the purpose behind what they're doing very close to heart All right, so now that we sort of think about force multipliers and and personnel inside Catabasis, one of the interesting things that we've been seeing is that as this new class of emerging biotech grows, for every one scientist or personnel you have inside, you have 5 to 10 externally across your distributed network of collaborators. That could be at a clinical site or a contract manufacturing site, etc. We'd love to just hear a little bit of your perspective and your strategy around thinking about that distributed network of maybe CMOs or CDMOs since you know you're in PharmSci how has that sort of changed how drugs are developed in that new mode for one i think over the last couple of years there's been a lot of consolidation in the CDMO space having said that I think for a small company this is obviously very basic but it is very important to identify the right CDMO to work with and i think everybody says that everybody understands that but you do see the the fda you know there are crls and and sometimes you you have to make sure that you have the right partner to work with and essentially it means that you have a great working relationship there is honest and transparent communication and a lot of times because you're not the one doing certain experiments and a partner is doing it for you i think it's important to communicate sometimes even the smallest details because it's important for where that is you know with the added complexities around data integrity and you know the questions that have been coming up i think it makes it all the more important that both the partner and the the company or the sponsor actually have a very trusting relationship of each other we are fortunate in that we've got some excellent partners we work with they're well well established in the space are there any uh, best practices that are coming to mind around identification and selection of CDMOs where you have a particular viewpoint that hey this has worked really well historically for us and and these are things that I always do now for me once I've identified a good partner to work with I would much prefer to keep that going maybe revisit every once in a while but I think it also just starts with a discussion with your partner maybe have it as part of the steering committee or where some of the more senior people come together and figure out what's been going well and how you can you know continue to manage this relationship and make it better in terms of soliciting new partners is there's always going to be new business needs because programs change and you know modality maybe changes and the folks you're working with do not have the capacity and i think at that point it's important to make sure that all your plans align in that if you're working with folks from a certain country and you already mapped out your supply chain constraints things like that it's important not to essentially complicate it by perhaps going outside of the country you've been working so that you have to reinvent the wheel and go back and learn new things right in a small organization is i think it's important that once you hit your stride you you continue to you know stay in it and try not to like not try to break it because i think it takes an enormous amount of energy to to get you back in stride and a lot of us just don't have that sort of bandwidth i mean you would rather just do things than put yourself on the path of doing things if you you know if you know what i mean so well you know i think the opportunity that 
this new distributed approach that drug development offers, I think, is you know aspects of agility, the ability to access new types of capabilities on demand, right? Certain potential financial flexibility, right? Variable versus fixed cost, etc. But I think as we've started to see as of late, there's been a set of challenges in terms of the global supply chain that come about because of geographic challenges or even um, health-related issues, right? Mm -hmm. Like the coronavirus. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, at a strategic level, as you are responsible for pharmaceutical development, how do you think companies should be thinking about their risk, especially when it comes to this now both global as well as highly diversified and distributed supply chain in their organization? Absolutely true that we are part of a global supply chain. Our program itself, material comes from Europe, manufactured in the U.S. Our clinical trial is global. It's uh, in the U.S., Canada, four countries in Europe, Israel, Australia. So all of it needs to come, be manufactured, be bottled, packaged, shipped. And global supply chain always has complexities. I and mean, there's, there's always going to be something on the horizon that could make life very difficult for you. And... I believe people will go through sort of this risk analysis and ensure that their supply chain is watertight and you you know you prepare yourself for eventualities but if you get these sort of perfect storm events that can really put a major dent in your plans right so when things like this happen I think you you get that dose of reality in that you know, your best laid plans if you will and it essentially reinforces the view that not only do you need to have a supply chain that's well established but you need to build in enough contingencies to ensure that you can have an un uninterrupted supply especially for the phase where we are in where we're running a phase three trial so a lot of our boys will actually go on an open label even before the trial is complete right mm -hmm. so it's important to make sure that that supply chain is preserved so that we can continue to essentially deliver material to them while drug goes through its paces. What would your guidance then be for other peer biotechnology companies, right? One, maybe at most two programs, no internal facilities and, and approach. How do you think the drug development organization of the future should be thinking about their risk related to this mode and, and this new world of drug development? Start thinking about risk early in development. Don't wait till it's part of a phase three or you realize that you're looking at potential commercialization in two years or three years before you start thinking about the risk of your supply chain. At every step in the process, continue to think what that means when you, when you take a certain decision. And it could be something as simple as you work with a certain formulation using an excipient that is, let's say, hard to procure, for example, right? And you continue to use that through your human work. And maybe one of the effective strategies would be to eliminate the need for that excipient and substitute that with something that's more well understood or one that can be sourced. So that only starts once you effectively start thinking about it from the very beginning and to start thinking what, what your entire supply chain, what your product looks like in a global marketplace six or seven or eight years from where you are right now. Mm -hmm. You have to think of global warming. I mean, there are these are all real concerns, right? I mean, eight years from now, you know, the world could be a different place. So, yeah. you really have to think what that what that means for you. So, do you think that there's an appreciation across the industry, or at least, are people across the industry thinking about this in some sort of standardized way, or have you been noticing a lot of variance from from company to company on assessing risk and and how forward looking companies are? I haven't seen anything. Um, 
to say that there is a standardized way we're looking at it but having said that i also believe that this is you know these are some of the smartest people on the planet so mm-hmm. um you know if if there is a way you know we will find it mm-hmm. um it's just that i i don't think the risk is quite in your face yet yeah. right it's still one of those things that we can potentially explain away maybe it is exactly that right maybe 5 years from now this is the y2k of 2020 right <laughs> or maybe it isn't it turns out to be a tangible risk that you have to account for and i think once that happens i think there will be a concerted effort within the industry i think and you will find support from every sort of corner of society at that point you know i think there would be a path forward to effectively deal with something like this yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think one of the things that comes to mind is given how often there are delays in development activities i think we as an industry do a good job of assessing risk at the commencement of any development initiative but when you know it goes from a clinical trial taking 2 years to 5 years and 6 years mm-hmm. have we really been strategic about thinking about all right well how has risk changed during that time period correct one of the most recent events that i feel like has triggered some of these more tectonic changes in perspective has been the hurricanes in puerto rico a lot of companies especially in the biologic space you know have uh, manufacturing facilities in Puerto Rico and then all of a sudden you know some unforeseen event makes it very difficult for them not only to support their employees much less you know keep the flow of medicines right ongoing and so i could see uh, i agree with you that the industry is one that when a problem exists moves heaven and earth to solve it but also at the same time with the same breath is reluctant to plan for the future has that been your experience I think the good thing about being at a small biotech is that I mean 10 years is a long time for for small biotech companies you know especially yeah. when especially one that's founded 10 12 years ago right so I I think the world view of the future is, is very different at a small biotech than it is at a, a large pharmaceutical company mm. and I don't necessarily know if having a 10 year view necessarily makes you better prepared to handle it but thinking about it is obviously the first step in the yeah. process so putting thought into something and arriving at strategies i guess is always a good thing typically the first place you start so well you know such an really appreciate you sort of being on the podcast today i think we really covered off a lot of really exciting things that i think different parts of our audience are really going to find exciting whether it be advice on career paths and trajectories along with thinking about the future of supply chain and manufacturing in uh, the pharmaceutical world Thank you so much for being here and looking forward to having you on once your NDA gets accepted and you guys start going commercial. Thanks for having me. Thanks Sachin. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi and Alok Thai. It's produced by Jean Merlane, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.